Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. New Zealand win by one run after being asked to follow on. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast, where today we'll be talking about one of the best test matches ever and a thrilling end to the T20 World Cup in South Africa. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is Katia Whitney, Ben Gardner and Phil Walker. If Phil's audio is a bit different today, it's because he's done his knee playing football and he basically can't move. Um, Mark <laughs> Butcher will be joining us later on. Ben, that, that really was quite something. New Zealand become just the fourth side ever to win a test after being asked to follow on. At the end of day two on Saturday morning UK time, New Zealand were 138 for seven in response to 435. Then at about 3am Tuesday in the UK, Neil Wagner gets Jimmy Anderson to glove on through to Tom Bundle to seal victory. Just so many bonkers moments happened on day five alone. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was totally absurd. I mean, the fact that, yeah, you, you pick either of those two things and it's a test that goes down in history as one of the greats, you know, a one-run win or a when following on and they, they managed to pack both in. Uh, you're right, New Zealand from what day, the end of day two onwards were kind of almost perfect really, weren't they? I mean, barring one weird stretch with the uh, with the bat on on day four and a, and a bit of a partnership between Stokes and Root, like there was everything that was, you know, you had sixes from Southie, you had calm heads with the bat, faced with a big, a big deficit and you had just an absolutely just gut-busting performance from Neil Wagner especially uh with the ball and he is just an absolute champion he's he's still someone who you can look at him and think like how is this guy getting wickets like I know you we we all know what the approach is he bowls you know loads of bouncers uh and batters kind of they don't they don't really know what to do but it's like it's like why is it it's not like he's bowling you know like high 80s often it often it's quite a lot slower than that they're they're mostly very well directed and I think that is an important thing there's not freebies there uh but most it kind of seems like there's just like a, a a will there that he has that in in those kind of moments when I mean, you look at his feet after the game and they're just like bandaged up his toes basically almost like hanging off kind of thing uh only attached by sellotape and he's, he's what he's going to be 37 years old why, why don't more bowlers do what he does because other than the first test match he's been remarkably successful across his whole career bowling about 80 miles per hour on really flat pitches why why does he do it and no one else does it yeah well i guess you've got a so he he is really really good at bowling bounces. Like it's it's easy to just say just do something. But you have to, you do you have obviously you've got to hit the right length still. Uh, and they are like when he's at his best, they're all kind of at that same sort of like high chest, low chin area. So you so he's been, so he's able to bowl a lot of them and over. It's not as if they're all getting called cool as bouncers. 
Um, but there are, uh, but there's also none that are like sort of, you know, t- tummy height that you can just pull, pull and get off strike or get four. Uh, so that that's some of it. Um, I think there's also a thing with the trajectory as well. They're kind of skiddy, so that's uh, maybe they're harder to pick up. And also, but it is, it is a, and I guess the thing is we've seen England sometimes when uh, they haven't really had an answer and they've gone for a short ball attack and it just like, it looks so like profligate, like batters will just, you know, get behind it and start hitting it and boundaries start flowing. And it's like, why are you not just bowling top of off and it's normal? Uh, and it's something just about the, the, the field placements New Zealand have as well that make it feel that there's no real like there's no there's no risk free option to do if you want to score any runs at all because you kind of you, there's no way just like wait for a bad week and not for a single you have to try, like, play like a proper attacking stroke or you just kind of like sway out of the way of it and neither feels that good when you're kind of going for a win on day five you know there's a second new ball a bit away and the pressure's building and that sort of thing he's just one of the best celebrators of a of a wicket in in test cricket as well i mean just that kind of the, the thing where he's he's the only thing that's keeping him up is that the fact that he's screaming you know he's leading back so far with his fist sort of clenched and then he's sort of like that scream kind of pulls him back to his feet uh and yet what was it in the second in that in the first in the second is the first test he bowled i think the second most expensive or in terms of economy 10 over spell in the history of test cricket and then this he takes four wickets and uh and wins even the game they had absolutely no right to and yeah it's probably let someone else speak but <laughs> It was uh, uh, just just in so many things you can pick out from that from that finish from you know the the, the ball that the, the things you think are going to turn it the ball that goes just over Michael Bracewell's head uh, when he should have been on the rope kind of thing and he doesn't quite pick it up uh, you had New Zealand burning a review and you're like wow the, the, the headingly parallels are just really starting to rack up here and I think a point just after Broad gets out you're like whatever happens here is amazing you've either got folks playing kind of like you know the, the innings of his life to or you know the the most impactful things of his life to getting and home and the stories about him or you've got you know one of Leach or Anderson hitting the win- winning runs that's amazing or you have New Zealand completing one of the greatest tests of all time and in the end it was it was that last one. Mm, Cathy if you had to pick a moment in the final couple of hours that, that you felt tipped the game in New Zealand's favour what would it be? Well it's not like difficult to look beyond the Harry Brook run out mm. right like it's just pure poetry that run out you've got everything from Root being halfway down the pitch before even really realising where the ball was to the hand on his head when he realised that Brooke was going to be run out by so much um, and it's hard to say that when you have a bloke who scores over 200 runs in a test match you can pinpoint him as the moment that England probably lost the game mm. yeah everything about it and Root's innings was pure shame I think from the moment that he ran Harry Brooke out he looked like he was trying to exercise himself of that guilt of running out before he'd faced the ball the bloke that everyone had come to see because that's what Brooke's done in the six test matches that he's played he's made it so that everyone wants to come and see him I was angry I was angry <laughs> when Root ran him out I don't care if we won or lost I wanted to see Harry Brooke play another innings but yeah no it's hard to look beyond that because at the end of the day there are so many so many moments when you lose a test by by one run you know one person in any inning scoring one run more or one run less is going to be the difference between the game five minutes of Harry Brook and the game would have been one so it's hard to look beyond that really mm. Phil England have kind of made you forget that scoring 260 on the final day is actually quite difficult and I completely agree with Katia the run out of Brook was was obviously really bad but Root was amazing. Like that—that that was one of the best I've seen. Root bat scoring at a runner ball on, on a fifth day pitch. Stokes the other end was was basically couldn't get out of first gear probably because of his knee. But Root was batting as as, as well as I can remember him really. Yeah, sublime. Um, so frustrating. Just from a stats point of view, there are games within games, and uh, I don't think Root's ever made two hundreds in a in a test match. I don't think that's the case. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and he was an absolute stick on. 
um, not just to 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 complete the the double, but but to win the game as well. As Cassia says, there was there was a penitent element to the knock after stitching Brook up. But if the first part of his innings in the first innings was a little bit crabby and a little bit uh, staccato for for Joe, then this was just root at his absolute imperious best, really. Um, he has that, as we know, genius for scoring runs off any delivery that he's put in front of him without any discernible risk. And that was the irony of, of the moment when he got out, because you saw it, and, and Gower was on the commentary, and he absolutely nailed it straight away, but it was quite evident. It, it was the first moment, with the exception of the odd reverse sweep that he premeditates against the spinner, against the quick, it was the first moment when... He played out of his orthodox box and he knew, sensed what was coming, you know, the telegraph short one from Wagner, but he, he, he looked to make room for himself to free up the shoulders to clump it over mid-wicket and the ball was too full, it was too full to do so. Skewed it up in the air, dropped his bat um, in self-disgust and with that moment, the tide turned, I think. You know, obviously, Brooks', Brooks run out was, was the key part of the early part of the day. And, and, and that bang, bang, Stokes and Root moment was, was, was critical. But I think Root in particular, because, you know, he's always 130 not out and winning that game, isn't he? He's doing it without even breaking sweat. Uh, and it was totally uh, out of place with the rest of the innings, really, um, that shot. That said, I'm really glad that, that Ben focused on on New Zealand almost exclusively because this is their story, right? You know, it, it may have been facilitated by by what England are doing and we'll no doubt come to that and, and speak yeah, in overblown terms about that, no doubt. But this is New Zealand's story, right? You know, three times in history uh, that a team have followed on and won and now it's four. Uh, what you saw on that final two days was, you know... A, a proud and resourceful and very talented cricket team that isn't world champion by accident, digging as deep as they've had to in years and coming out of it with a win against the form team in the world or one of the form teams in the world. So, so look, that's, that's where, rightly, we started this podcast because it was a, just yeah. an extraordinary performance by New Zealand. Great to see yeah. Williamson doing his thing and Wagner is a star, isn't he? He's, he's one of the ultimate cult heroes of the game. But just to follow that, I thought Tim Southley had a really good final day. So he managed yeah. a limited attack well. The big gamble we've not mentioned yet is they, they basically decided to pick Michael Bracewell, who, let's be honest, is a, probably a, a part-time spinner at best at this point in his career as their fourth bowler. And he managed that limited attack. Henry had to go off injured for a bit. Um, this was totally lost on my flatmate who I was watching this with who doesn't really like cricket that much but I totally called the Ben Duckett wicket so when they had the sweeper out it was quite a high risk shot to, to try and force a cut shot through the very small gap behind square on the offside and Duckett was continuously looking for that um, so I thought Sally managed that very well and then the other period that I thought resulted in a wicket from how New Zealand were playing beforehand was that period before the Stokes wicket the runs totally dried up in the half an hour or maybe 20 minutes or so before that wicket. England started that final session very quickly. The commentators were talking about how the result was a formality. It was totally inevitable that England were going to clean sweep the winter. But England just went nowhere for, for 25 minutes. And that was really, really cleverly managed by New Zealand. Um, yeah. And that kind of bought that, that, that double wicket spell. No, exactly. One of the great unheralded spells um, 
actually one of the greats, one of the, the phrases that we're not allowed to say anymore. But anyway, uh, an outstanding unheralded spell was Matt Henry. And you're absolutely right to call that up. Yes, he, he didn't get a wicket, but Joe had been, you know, untouchable as he is uh, and certainly uncontrollable in terms of runs. And Henry reverted to a kind of back of the length Tom Cartwright style hitting the seam cutters keeper standing up and it was a brilliant brilliant spell and suddenly Joe looked like he didn't really have anywhere to go Stokes was obviously on one knee by this point and you're absolutely right to call that you know Southie sensed the moment Wagner was doing his his ultra violence from one end but it was it was Henry really who who held that thing together and considering he was literally out on his back at lunch it's an absolutely brilliant spell of bowling that and really sort of shifted the mood, I think, turned the tide in the end. Just to pick up what Phil said about New Zealand, about what this means for them. This, this, it, he's right, this is about you know th- them being a champion cricket team and world champions for a reason. But this is also about reasserting that, I guess. I mean, they have a very proud record at home. I think this, this now extends it to six years without a home series defeat. Equally, they've had a few iffy results, losing to Bangladesh, Drawing with the Safri team, they they kind of should have beaten, uh, and then and then obviously in the first test here, and you look at you know uh, what what this means for quite a lot of those individual players. Kane Williamson had passed fifty once, think since the World Championship final before this game, I think, um, and you know part of that is down to uh, his fitness and injuries and stuff. But he is a player who you know struggles to get on the park and just seeing innings of that quality from a a guy that good just doing what he does in his in his own way entirely, obviously uh, uninfluenced by how. England would have approached it in the same situation. I mean, Neil Wagner, the here on 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 day five, is going to turn thirty seven during the Slanger series. Southie's the new captain, and he's thirty four. Conway's kind of like the new guy they find, and he's he's not young. This is this is a uh, it, it's great for this team who are you know the greatest side that New Zealand have have ever produced. Obviously, had the World Championship final as well, but to have this moment at home as kind of like a you know. Packed house on day five. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The 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 free entry as well, and to have to have this is just is just something in in cricketing folklore is may, maybe the greatest uh, test comeback of all time. You have to, you'd have to say it's in the conversation for that. Uh, they fully deserve it as a team, I think. Phil, we had a great set of questions in from uh, one listener called Nick. He asks: Basketball is fascinating in that it makes you question what sport is actually about. Are we comfortable with losers walking off smiling? Does joy outweigh success? If success isn't everything, why are we competing? I, I guess the, the backdrop of that question is that England made a decision that allowed New Zealand a route to victory that probably wouldn't have existed otherwise. But they enforced the follow-on. And I think there's a lot of follow-on chat at the end of day two. But I thought it changed quite a lot with how New Zealand started day three. Tim Southey basically smoking 70 off. 40 balls and Stokes wasn't able to bowl really um Anderson and Broad are very old and and Robinson's not the most robust of seamers so that was quite a brave call to to enforce the, to follow on yeah well <laughs> uh where do you start with all of this <laughs> firstly um at the risk of referencing myself here i think part of this is an age thing right if you grew up in the 90s watching English cricket, then you you quickly learnt to park the wins and the losses because there weren't too many of the former and there was a hell of a lot of the latter. So you fell in love with the game. The game became the thing. And you you, you started to want to protect the game. 
And that's always been my personal attitude, right? So I'm, I, the jump that I've had to make to get on board with this new experiment is not as big a jump as maybe other people who are more used to winning and quite like the taste of winning. And perhaps there's something about sport in the modern day as well that it is, it hangs on the, on, 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 on the notion of winning at all costs and everything is about the result. But to me personally, it never has really, because I'm a cricket fan from the 90s. So I never had any sort of place to be concerned about winning and losing because we lost all the time. So for me, looking at this, and I can absolutely agree, right, with people who say England would have stood a better chance of winning the game if they hadn't followed on. If they just smashed 220 in a session and a bit, and then they've got at least five sessions um, it would be more than that. It'd probably be six sessions to, for a nominal 550 or whatever. So England win the game 99 times out of 100. They win the game the way that they did it 95 times out of 100. So there's not a massive amount of difference. And the pitch was never really going to deteriorate that much. So there was logic to the decision, but there was also undoubtedly Stokes's devotion to the story, to the narrative, to the drama. He can't resist the drama. He, see, he, he sees... He sees this thing as something far bigger than the W or the L at the end of it. And I know that that is going to irritate people, but that is the case now. And um, me personally, look, it, it, it's, in, it's incredible content, isn't it? That, that's what it is. And I went to bed. Look, if, if my football team loses, then I can be quite grouchy. I can be quite pissed off for, for a little bit of time. But if the cricket team wins or loses uh, and it's been a thriller, then... I have a different kind of reaction to it, right? But it's a deeper sort of reaction because I've been more absorbed in it. And there's and you're gripped by the cleverness of it and the the obviously the mad levels of physical exertion and the physical pain and what Wagner goes through is compelling in and of itself. But the pleasure derives from the spectacle and the this the exquisiteness of the tension, not not the not necessarily the result at the end of it. I would far rather have seen what happened there and England lose in an incredible finish that we talked about for many, many years, then them have gone through the sort of the rather conventional process of you've got a lead of 220 on first innings. So you, you put yourself in, you have a whack, you get up to 500 plus and then you stick them in and then you go through the, the conventional and perhaps slightly soulless grind when you in, inevitably win some point in the final session or if you're lucky on lunch on day five. What Stokes has done is he's opened it up. He's opened it up into something else, something something broader and perhaps a little bit more meaningful. Um, and that is going to piss people off, and I get that. I understand that. But as my, as my mate put it last night at, at quarter to four in the morning, football has consequences and cricket is about world peace. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I, I, I get it. I get it. But the thing is, we've got to accept it that Stokes is experimenting with the form here, right? He's... He's he's a he's a jazz music he's a improv jazz musician he's Thelonious Monk on one knee right he's 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 taking the content that we understand the existing conventional content you know big first in his lead pile them on declare begin the grind to a soulless victory and he's expanding on these ideas within within the context within the, the within the form he's varying the melodies he's inventing new off kilter rhythms and all the rest of it but within the existing structure of the game and so. It might be irritating and it might not always work, as is the case with lots of lots of improv jazz, but you're creating something deeper and more interesting and more challenging 
And isn't that the point, really, in the end? I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it is to me. I mean, just on a counter-narrative to Phil's character assassination of everyone who can't remember England in the 90s, um, completely agree. Like, if you're getting bogged down in the minutiae of should Ben Stokes have enforced the follow-on one run later, one run earlier, whatever, and you've not, you're not looking at that test match for what it was, then, you know, what are you doing? I've always thought the follow-on is such a weird concept anyway, but it's only wrong in hindsight. So you can only be wrong in forcing a follow-on if you've lost a test match, regardless of whether you lose it by one run or you lose it by 200 runs. It doesn't really matter. And again, if England had scored one batter from England scored one more run or one batter from New Zealand had scored one less run, that follow-on would have been a genius decision, right? So it doesn't really matter. You don't really get much credit because you're expected to win when you have a lead of more than 200 runs. So kind of whatever decision you make, you're never as a captain going to get credit for it, really. Yeah, completely. But it's the same with declarations, isn't it? You get a declaration wrong and suddenly everyone's on you going, oh, you shouldn't have declared. But in the moment, that felt like the right decision to do. Whether it was the right decision to do, and as it happened when Stokes did enforce the follow-on, I thought it was the wrong decision. But it's, it would have been the right decision if one batter had scored one more run. Phil talked about being influenced by England not winning that much in the 90s I think I'm influenced by Strauss maybe not declaring at the right time in the in the late 2000s West Indies I, I absolutely live for when do you declare when do you enforce follow-on I have to say I, I do have sympathy with England fans who um, are looking at the reaction but both from uh, you know p- people who are writing about and talking about the game who are talking about you know how great a game it is and how great England gave it to us um, and a bit from uh McCullum and Stokes themselves after the game sort of talking about you know how great it was to be a part of uh and that sort of thing and feeling like that they I can see how they feel that they feel it more strongly than than the players which can be a frustrating place to be I think Stokes and McCullum did both say they were frustrated to lose it but were you know the the thing they've made clear is that losing is not the end of the world and I think that if you're if you're an England fan trying to understand why you should get on board with this if winning is the only thing you care about I think the main thing is is that this way of responding to a defeat makes losing the next test or losing in the Ashes a lot less likely, I think. I think if, if you think of another England team in the past who in the last test of a winter uh, before a massive home summer uh, lose in this fashion, having enforced follow-on by one run, you could see that as something that could you know, be, be massive, ba- massively derailing. You could see people you know, call, calling for, for, for heads to roll. How, how could this happen? That sort of thing. Um, the fact that that's not happening... Uh, makes England much less likely to sort of, you know, go off a cliff, which is the kind of thing this result can do. H- having said that, I mean, you know, in some ways with the with the following decision as well, I think it could have it could have actually gone a lot worse for England than it even did. I mean, when you look at the post T session on day four, was in a sort of in low key way the, the the weirdest almost of the whole Test match. I mean, at that point, uh, New Zealand are what I think they're five down at that point. Williamson's passed 100, Blundell's seeming, seemingly cruising towards one. Neither Broad or Anderson comes back out after T. Um, almost seems like they may be on, on strike at the decision to uh, uh, to enforce the follow-on. So you've got, you know, Ollie Robinson, he's bowling at that point, like mid to high 120s. You've got Jack Leach, who was, you know, bowled, bowled well, bowled consistently, but at that point, not with a huge amount of threat. And then you've got Joe Root. Uh, and all of a sudden, Stokes throws the ball to Harry Brook, who somehow gets out, you know, New Zealand's greatest ever test batter, uh, one of the most defensively solid <laughs> that the game has ever known uh, in in a ridiculous way. Michael Bracewell. A, a review that even he didn't really think was worth going for. Yeah, the the, <laughs> the, the reaction from everyone on the field is just is just laughing at it. M- Michael Bracewell, who had a part, one run out of the side, uh, he, he'll be very, very glad he didn't cut out the line of that game because he, you know, forgets to ground his bat, forgets to even put his foot down 
Uh, and then all of a sudden, New Zealand have lost five wickets for nothing and England are chasing 250 rather than what could easily have been 350 in two and a half sessions on on the final day. And, and England would have chased that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Maybe that would have freed them up. I don't know. The other thing as well, actually, in terms of uh, captaincy stuff, I also would have, I, I, would, I would have really liked to see Ollie Stone for the first game. And I'm quite surprised that he didn't choose to, you know, have a look at him for the second game. I mean, this is a guy who is surely going to have, or you think would have a part to play of the Ashes. There's a decent chance of that, at least. You've got two old guys uh, in a back-to-back test test series. Uh, and this was also exactly the kind of situation in that second innings when you want a guy who can bring that extra dimension, especially when Stokes' fitness concern. You know, when uh, Conway and, and Latham are cruising or Blunder and Williamson are cruising, you want someone who can do something a bit different, who can crank it up, who can just get a bit of excitement going. And Stokes captained well on the field in terms of mixing things up and trying different lines of attack, field settings, bowling dry at points, going short at points. There was there was lots of enterprise there, but surely you want a bowler like Stone for exactly that sort of situation. And also just, just to have a look at him and to give some guys a rest. I think that was also a bit of a misstep. Phil, it feels like a lifetime ago, but Harry Brook played um, an extraordinary innings on day one. England were 21 for three. The pitch was very green. It was doing a lot. At the end of the day, 184 not out. Yeah, he's good, isn't he? He is, he is a fine, fine batter. What more do you want me to say? You, know, it's you, you wrote a very doing. nice piece on it. Thank you, mate. Just say what you wrote in the piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, there's... I don't know. I can't even remember what I wrote. Um, but every now and then a, a sports person comes along um, that threatens to do something that you've never really seen before and you get totally carried away with it. And, and in the end, there's a reversion to the mean and... You know, I'm not saying that Harry Brook won't be a great player, but at the moment, you dare to imagine that he's going to be something beyond that even, which is which is irrational and it's ridiculous and he's only been holding a bat for five minutes and crickets, the vicissitudes of cricket will do their thing and he gets, gets run out without facing a ball two days after I write that he's basically got the whole game in his hands. That's the, that's the nature of it. That said... Uh, I've, I haven't seen a talent as pure as this play for England in, since Peterson, without a doubt. And uh, I actually think he, he will eclipse Peterson because Peterson left a lot of runs out there that, that, that he didn't really convert. And I think Brooke has the kind of the, this amazing combination of, of extrovert flamboyance and Yorkshire earthiness, for want of a better way of putting it. And it's a, it's a devastating combination. Um, and yeah, look, it, it is a joy. It, it's it's a, it's an odd thing. Uh, one thing I wrote, which was sort of inspired by Catcher, actually, and, and we both felt the same thing watching him on that that first night. And obviously, our body clocks are a bit skewed, so you're not just luxuriating across the whole of a day. You're thinking, how much longer can I stay awake through the night? And Joe Root's batting at the other end, the celestial Joe Root, who. I've not wanted to do anything for the last 10 years of my life other than watch Joe Root back. And suddenly you're kind of hoping that he gets up the other end because uh, waiting, lurking there is this 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 new outlying monster um, who, you know, tips the wink at you, literally. Um, twiddles his, his broken bat in his hands, one that he's clearly used for years, uh, and then produces things that you marvel at, really. Um he is, an, he is an extraordinary addition to this team and the perfect encapsulation of, of this whole experiment, really. Um, majesty and, and uh, a little bit of mystery, but cold, hard numbers. 
as well, you know. Yeah, I mean, after the, the 100, I watched the highlights of his 100 in the PSL last year. That was also when his side were three down for basically nothing at the start. Um, it's just the range of shots he's got because he slogs it and you're like, oh, he's, he's just he just likes it when it's in the slot, basically. And then he hits the perfect cover drive where the balance is, is literally perfect. can't remember if it was in this test match or the last one. I think it might have been in the last one, actually. But BT did a thing where they showed four deliveries that landed in exactly the same space, the same spot, and he did four completely different things to each of them. Um just as he as he wends his way to a, to a, to another score, and it's all completely natural. He has he has this innate ability to anticipate what the bowler's going to do, and that is the mark of a really, really, really top class player. Um, and in fact, I put that in the article, didn't I? Thinking about it now, Peterson said to me once. I asked him what's the secret to playing the quicks. And he said you've got to anticipate. You have to have a sixth sense about where they're going to put it, and then you have to react with that sort of pre-ordained knowledge, if you like, or pre-held knowledge. Brooke has that. Watching him play against the left arm of Wagner in the first innings, it was just sensational because every time he pitched one up, he dealt with it immaculately, as, as you would, but conventionally. But he was already in position for the, for the follow-up delivery, which is always going to be a safety first, back-of-a-length follow-up because nobody wants to, get, wants to get driven twice in two balls. So he knows what's coming next. And he's already halfway opening the face to angle it down behind square, knowing that the ball's going to run across him. And so he's already toying with a bowler who's got 260 test wickets straight away. Um, And only the really, really best players have that kind of innate sense about what's coming. And they can also bend it to their ideas as well. He is an extraordinary player. There's going to be issues down the line, perhaps, because there is with everybody. Even Bradman was dropped. So, look, it's, it's impossible not to get carried away, but it's also necessary to remember that he is at the starting point of what could be a great career. Just, just run him out without facing. Seems like a pretty simple solution. <laughs> just do that every time and uh, his average will plummet. Oase asks, I know neither is particularly likely, but humor me, which is more likely to happen? Root beating Tendulkar's run tally or Anderson beating Murley's wicket tally? Root getting to Tendulkar's record. He's 5,000 runs away-ish which is in given the Mount England play is only about four and a half years away. So that's going to about 36 and a half. Um, whereas I think if Anderson breaks Murray's record, it'll be what, 43, 44. So I think the Root one is, is much more likely. Yeah, I'd be, at this point, you'd be surprised if Root doesn't end up in at least second place. Yeah, and but, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up in first place, yeah. basically. A few questions about individual players, but we'll focus on one on Pope. Um, I think people are becoming increasingly aware of the, the quite quite large discrepancy between his first and second innings records. He averages 44 in the first innings and 16 in the second. Um, ben, I thought, yes, it was peak frenetic Pope, um, very premeditated in his approach, pushing his hands a lot at balls that if you if you're middle, you're not getting anything and it's quite risky pushing your hands in the way that he was to like six stump deliveries. Yeah, I, I, the first and He's second... obviously done a very good job at number three. So sure. I'm not saying drop him. Yeah, but, yeah. but, but you know, the, he's an interesting uh, sort of guy to look at, Pope. I, I The first and second thing, I mean, that, that could easily be sort of like statistical noise. I mean, may, maybe you get players who are better with sort of like a blank canvas and when there's sort of a, you know, a, a target in mind and, and sort of match situations to navigate, they can be a... Uh, a bit trickier, but I, I would say that he will work that out. The thing that is more worrying is that just that that Surrey relentlessness that we see, you know, 
day in day out sitting here at the office looking out of the oval when you know as soon as he's got to 20 you know he's got you know a decent chance against 200 kind of thing that's not there for England basically I think he's passed 40 what four times since he made that 100 in the first test of the Pakistan series and not gone past 60 like it's not that he's you know we, we know he can uh, play the bowling at this level uh, and we know that he can play big hundreds but he's not making big hundreds against the bowling at this level for some reason and you know as much as he has done he has done a good job and you know you've got a number three which is a problem position that England have had for a long time and he's averaging nearly 40 um, and, 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 that, and that all of that is a good job but you Pope, when you look at when you look at him for sorry, you look at his county average. You look at some of the shots he can play. You look at you know the, the seemingly perfect technique he has, and you think like you are thinking, why isn't this guy averaging close to fifty? And you know, cricket is uh, is a game that can change very quickly, and we've seen Ashes series do funny things to players and to have big consequences for them. That you know, Pope, you know, he he goes into the summer obviously as the incumbent and as a very important member of that team, but he you know he will need to. You, you hope that thing switches at some point and uh i guess I, I i think it will but you know that's uh it's it's hard to work out why it's not i guess and so there's a worry that if if you can't see it from the outside that you're trying to work out how they're going to see it from the inside i suppose um is it okay if i say one more thing on stokes and mccullum go uh, for it so just in terms of their reaction after the game uh i think i i would be very surprised if they are not hurting more than they are letting on from this even you know you can't read too much into what the smiles look like they looked almost painted on the smiles a little bit because they know that this is this is the thing that they have you know it's, it's live by the sword die by the sword they're kind of uh they have said all these things so when this kind of thing happens you've got to kind of take it on the chin and act, and act like you know you just had a great time doing it and they're also as i said before the strategic reasons for reacting this way um but i would imagine that they will obviously go back have a debrief look at what worked what didn't why it worked why it didn't uh, there is an element of smoke and mirrors to all that they're doing and in a way you know it's it's as amazing as everything else they've achieved that they've managed to lose a test in this fashion and not been pilloried for it you know um uh, and and that is that that is something that they have kind of cultivated uh, but it's also something that they've i think deliberately cultivated and they will go back and think actually we could have done this uh, they'll learn from it as they did the last time they got beat. You know, they went too hard against Africa in that first test, came back, played a very mature game in the second and then won, what, the next six tests up until this point. I think there will be some sort of reaction that we'll see on the field. Uh, they just might not tell us about it and pretend they're just kind of having fun and having mm. a whack. It's also ages until their next test as well. We just go back to the Pope for a second. I think we ought to be really careful we're not just picking holes unnecessarily in a side that has been really, really good apart from like what a session and a half today um and if you look i think there was a similar stat with joe root a couple of years ago that he never scored hundreds in the fourth innings or something i might be yeah, until last year yeah completely um and why are you picking that hole in joe root like he's still your best your best batter and it's the same with pope like searching for what so many years for someone who can actually score a 50 at number three and now pope's come along and as soon as he doesn't convert his 50s or score in the second innings it's a problem um and I just think you've got to be you've got to be really careful with it. There are so many other problems that could exist that as soon as someone's there and is not perfect, they shouldn't have that problem constantly niggled at and niggled at and niggled at until it becomes a massive problem when really it isn't. Mm. I guess with, with Pope, he's done he's done a brilliant job for him. I don't think many people expect him to average forty when he got that job, having never batted three for Surrey. But I guess there there has always been a question of Pope as why is the 
gap between his county performance and England performance so large. And I think it's interesting what you said about kind of how we look at the England team at the moment. I'm actually kind of glad they've got this another loss under their belt because I think there's an element of people getting a bit too carried away with how well they've done. I think, first of all, really good sides don't have that many close test matches and they've had quite a few close test matches. And also, like, at the end of the day, if you go through the side, you still don't really know who their opener is going to be in six months. Pope's only been batting three for uh, six months. Uh, Stokes hasn't really quite found a rhythm yet. The attack in this test match was quite one-dimensional and they've played some really, really weak opposition this winter. You know, Scott Kugeline, Blair Tickner, Zahid Mahmood, Muhammad Ali, Michael Bracewell. Those are not test quality bowlers really and England have done well to beat them they've done very well to take 20 wickets in Pakistan they did very well to win the first test match here but I think it should also be acknowledged that the quality of opposition isn't what you normally have in Pakistan and in New Zealand over the course of five test matches and also really importantly um, still no test series win for Matt Smith on BT Sport um, England's record in series played on BT Sport is is truly appalling, um, but at least he got a win in in Mount Monganui. Um, before we go to Butch, I just wanted to say something about um, uh, an old coach of mine who's a Kiwi. So he, John Campbell at Richmond Cricket Club, uh, he he passed away last week. Um, so there was quite a large part of me that really wanted New Zealand to win on the final day. Every thriving club in the country will have a John Campbell. He uh, ferried us all over uh, London to play youth cricket uh, on every day of the week, basically. Um, he not only was very generous with his time, he was very generous to us, very good coach. He took us to the overloads. I got a message from from someone I've not seen in years. We were both sharing messages about how much he meant to us. Uh, so there was quite a large part of me that when New Zealand won last night, that thought John would have absolutely loved to see this England team get humbled by New Zealand at Wellington. So um, yeah, all my thoughts are with, with Devon and the Campbell family. Let's head to Butch out in Pakistan to hear his thoughts on the series. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Why do teams enforce the follow-on? What's what's the logic? Obviously, it didn't quite work for England, but why do teams do it? Um, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, it depends. If you're if you're playing, then obviously the the aim is to try and to to try and uh, win a game. Um, there you go. There's your big headline uh, headline statement to begin with. Um, when you're in the commentary box, it's to try and get the game over as fast as you possibly can, so you can go and play golf. Um, hence, commentators are very keen on um, enforcing follow-ons, and cricket teams, generally speaking, are not. Um, the circumstances in which you would do it um, are if there just simply isn't time enough in the game to win it an- another way. That's that's the first first port call. That if by losing, you know, you've lost time to weather, or in first-class cricket, or whatever. Um, you know, it's taken a long old time to kind of get to the point where um, you've bowled out the opposition, batting second. You're still a couple of hundred runs ahead, but, you know, you're running out of time at the back end of the game. You haven't got time to waste by going out there and batting again. Then you would, then you would do it. Um, 
what other scenarios. Because you don't really see it that often these days. No, but because because there aren't really very many scenarios where it's necessary. That's I mean that's that's the main point. I mean, I, for anecdotally, well, actually not anecdotally, I, I, it, they're anecdotes for me. But I was there, I witnessed it. I mean, playing playing for playing for Surrey in first class cricket all those years ago. If if we stuffed up a first innings, we would sit in the dressing room hoping to get the knock on the door. Go on, stick us back in again. Um, and it happened on two two definite occasions that I can remember. It might even have happened a third time, where teams had, had scored a, a decent first innings total, four hundred whatever, bowled us out for one hundred and fifty, for whatever reason. And and we sort of sat there with with our extremely good batting lineup and our world class bowling attack in the background, sitting there in the dressing room going, it's all right, if they stick us in again, we'll get 450 and we'll win the game. And lo and behold, that's what happened. So the reason it doesn't happen very often, the reason teams don't ask teams to do it very often is because it gives the opposition who have played badly that to that point an outside chance of turning the match around on you and winning, as um, happened in in New Zealand. Um, and it's only ever happened four times in the history of Test Match Cricket. You know, So it's a, it's a rarity. But I played in a team where where I think we did it three times to, to teams, um, and and therefore, particularly in a, in a match in a game in a situation where presume, presumably the pitch is relatively flat, and presumably you've got a lot of time left in the match in order to to manoeuvre yourselves into position to win the game anyway. You know that you you put extra wear on the pitch, you give your bowlers a rest, all of those usual sort of cliche things set the game up for yourselves to go and, and bowl at the opposition with them needing 400 plus. You know, that's 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 why it doesn't happen. That's why teams don't do it. As to why England did it on this occasion, I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not going to sit here and, and say that they were, they were wrong. It's just kind of, it, it did exactly what people who, who don't enforce the follow-on worry about. It gives the opposition the chance to grind you down a little bit, to put a few runs on the board and then put you in a position in the game Whereby you're you're batting when the pitch is at its worst with a total on the board, which is, you know, presumably what you didn't want to happen in the first place. Although with this England team, you could say, um, well, they prefer chasing than than winning at the game the other way around, anyhow. But um, you know, and there are other factors as well. You look at the, the England's bowling attack. You look at the sort of you know the the two thirty fives, over thirty fives, and 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 Ollie Robinson. You look at a captain who's struggling with his knee. Sort of bowling resources wise, they're not. You wouldn't say that they were sort of sturdy enough, or at least um, varied enough pace-wise to sort of deal with flat flatness in pitches. Should should the opposition come out and bat better the second time round, and that kind of was, was how it proved, wasn't it? They looked a little bit, a little bit toothless as they got as they got weary and the pitch got better. England will turn around and say, "Look, two hundred and fifty. We should we could have we should have chased that in our sleep." And that you know, a, a bad batting performance on the last day doesn't make the decision to enforce the follow-on. Mm-hmm. Um, a terrible one because it wasn't terrible. It just it just it just proves to people as to why most teams in that exact same situation would not have done it. Hmm. Um, at the start of your answer, you said why commentators like follow-ons, and I do wonder if the, the love of the golf course might have played a part in England's decision as well. Um, as, as you said, England, <laughs> as you said, England didn't look particularly threatening in the second innings with that quite samey one-dimensional attack, which has been a, a problem for England overseas Test matches in the in the pre-McCullum years. Do you think, in a way, that's quite a valuable lesson? learn ahead of the ashes because the pitches in England in the last few years have actually been pretty good there have been some pitches where you do want that extra pace and that actually having gone through this this experience that England might be less inclined to 
play all three of Broad, Allison, and Robinson. They might do it once or twice on pitches they think are going to be more seamer friendly, but actually that's not going to be the balance they, they rely on in the Ashes. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was a lesson as such because I, I would imagine that in the in the you know in the heart of hearts had had they had the option to have one of the one of Wood or Archer um, steaming in for them in any one of the in, in any one of the two Test matches out there they would have done you know it's it simply a case of you know having having all of your your ducks in in the right place uh, in in a row at the same time for this particular Test match series but for sure I mean you know and, and there's also a little bit of you know, there's there's a little bit of that as, as we were talking about in terms of evolving um, the evolving nature of the way that they're playing at the moment. You know, Joe Root kind of went back to to do what to doing what Joe Root did best and made 150. You know, so that 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 sort of thing is happening, and I think that you know, going out to entertain and going out to sort of play exciting cricket is is fabulous. But but so is so is winning winning Test matches that you should win. You know, it's kind of so is that being slightly more hard nosed about it. And it, who's to say that it wouldn't have been in, intensely in, entertaining had England not enforced a follow-on, gone out and had a and had a hit and giggle for for however long, for the best part of a day, smashed it to all parts, and then and then come out with a you know come out to take ten wickets. That that would have been just as entertaining, probably. So you know there, there is that that sort of balance between um, doing the whole SAS rogue heroes trying to blow up the depot and stuff when you could have just snuck around the back. Um, you know, and sometimes you know, tiptoeing behind the trees and getting your win done that way, you know. That that would definitely go through my head when England enforced the follow-on. I was like, I think I want to watch Harry Brook bat at five more than Henry Nichols. <laughs> that's the that's the entertaining option. Zach Wally had a quiet series, and um, there's the the looming return of Johnny Bairstow potentially ahead of the Ashes. Um, we talked quite a lot recently about how suitable or potentially unsuitable Bester would be to that opening role. And Crawley's the one in the top order who's got the fewest runs at the moment. Do you see that happening? Can you see them realistically opening with Bester or, or maybe even Stokes doing the job himself? Um, well, I mean, he, he might, I suppose. I hadn't really thought of that. But, you know, in, it would be entirely in keeping with Ben's don't never ask anybody to... Um, Never ask anybody to do anything you wouldn't do yourself. Um, style of captaincy to go. All right, well, I'll do it then. But but certainly, if you're looking at sort of a, a personnel or at least at the 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 top six as a whole, then the one that's not functioning, making way for 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 England's best player of last summer, Johnny Bairstow, is is probably the only move to make, isn't it? Or there's the unthinkable, um, but uh, but always there lurking in the back of the cupboard. Um, option of of getting rid of Ben folks and, and and inserting Johnny back in as keeper batter. Although we don't know, you know, fitness wise as to whether or not that that's going to be viable anyway for for Johnny. So um, I hope that doesn't happen. But I think you know, <laughs> all, all joking aside about about Zach Crawley and and his undroppableness. I think if um you know if if you bring Johnny Bairstow back into that mix and there literally is nowhere else for him to go, then then he would be the man to make way for sure. You're you're obviously in in Pakistan covering the the Pakistan Super League. There was a interesting conversation on commentary yesterday where you threw a quiz question out there: Who's got the most five wicket hauls in men's T Twenty cricket globally? Um, well, I think three Lahore Calendars players are right up at the top of that list. But number one isn't Shaheen Afridi, isn't Harris Ralph, isn't Rashid Khan. It's uh, David Weiser who's sitting at the top of the tree with six. And as you correctly noted he actually has another one as well in the aisle t20 that doesn't count because that didn't have full 
um, T20 status. He, he is a really effective bowler. And I'm, I'm trying to work out why. I, I, I thought this as well with Jimmy Nisham in the SA20. Those kind of all-rounders who bowl low 80s max in recent in the recent past have, have fed pretty badly in T20. But these two guys are actually becoming increasingly in, effective with the ball. But I'm not entirely sure why. Do you, do you have any wisdom? Mate, it completely beats me. I mean... You know, you've got you've got Shaheen Shahafridi and Harris Ralph bowling thunderbolts mixed up with slow balls. You've got stumps being detonated left, right, and centre. And yet, um, yeah, and the man that the man that beats them all is is uh, old Dave Grohl. Um, I I don't know. I mean, he's got a lot better actually. I mean, I remember watching him um, when he was I think he was with RCB all those years ago, 2015, 2016, One of his many um, franchises around the place and kind of, he just got slotted all the time. You know, the slow balls didn't seem to work. Um, you know, he couldn't get the ball to sort of stay in the pitch um, with his, with his cutters and with his height and everything. And he just got dispatched. Um, but over the years, as, as tends to happen, I suppose, if as players, um, as players sort of play more and more of this stuff, and if they manage to sort of survive without getting blasted out of it entirely, they just get very, very canny and just sort of get a knack for knowing, knowing what's coming um, and, and understand kind of understand their angles and their art a little bit better. Um, you know, there, there's absolutely no doubt that he is a, a, a huge, huge part of the, this calendars team who are defending champions at the moment. Um, and he's a lot more, more than sort of a journeyman pro to them as well. He's kind of, they use him in all sorts of ways in terms of his um, sort of, um, uh, you know his knowledge, his man management. He seems to do quite a lot of the speaking to the team and all that kind of stuff. So he's highly, highly valued member of the thing. And it just goes to show if you stick around for long enough, there are there are bags of wickets to be taken in the T20s when you come on sort of second half of the innings and people are having a right old swipe at you. So, um, good luck to him. It's a it's a, it's a good story, isn't it? Because the mm. you know there are guys like him making a living all over the world playing um you know, franchise cricket who kind of get picked up in auctions. They don't get the big money. They don't get the big headlines and stuff, but they actually make up, um, you know, make up a, a really good part of, of a lot of very successful sides. You get these all-rounders who can kind of, who can do their bit every single evening. And, um, well, and when it comes to David Visa, he's doing more than that. He's, he's knocking teams over. Half half of teams, in fact. Yeah, it's, I think it's more interesting seeing... David Weiser and Sikandar Raza be really important to a team than seeing Rashid Khan and Shaheen Afridi. Yeah, I mean, you know, Sikandar Raza is another, is another interesting example, actually. You know, Zimbabwe have been sort of on the on the outskirts of international cricket or at least international cricket consciousness for a very long time now. And yet, um, you know, there's this, there's this guy with a, with a mid-Atlantic twang in his voice who, who bashes it and can bowl all, all sorts of uh, different variations of, of right arm spin um and again is somebody that gets picked up all over the place so you know you won't again he won't get a headline grabbing number but he'll get lots and lots of different numbers and and have a, and a very career very good career doing it and there will be a, a heck of a lot of younger english players who will be on that similar treadmill um in the years to come so um they're not bad examples to follow Mm. Um, and my final Lahore calendars question, I promise. Abdullah Shafiq, we've seen him score a lot of test runs, but he's, he's doing really well for a guy who's who's not particularly big. You wouldn't really associate him with being a power hitter, but he's been scoring really quickly. And he's just a very, very classy player who you, you, you might think can actually do it in all three formats for Pakistan. 
I think so. Yeah, I mean, it, there was there were whispers that he kind of was being left out because he was too orthodox, and and the same goes for the guy I mentioned last week, the same um, O, uh, the left hander. Um, uh, but both of them have, have played magnificently. I mean, the, the pitches here are terrific for for batting on, and that that is for sure. But these are guys who have got um, you know really sound, solid, orthodox techniques, but also hit it miles. Lucky bastards. <laughs> Yeah, and in front of packed crowds as well. Um, it still looks very fun on the TV. Yeah, I mean, there there was a bit of a drama um, in that uh, issues around sort of security and things like that and who was paying for what meant that, that there was a horrible um, shiver running through the entire competition that everything was going to be moved to Karachi. So we weren't going to go to Islamabad. We would only play a couple of games here in Lahore. Um, uh, and that would have been a real shame because Karachi funnily enough, is probably one of the, the worst supported places in, in the tournament. I mean, they, they have had a lot of cricket recently, but they kind of tend to, to not show up unless it's a really, really big night. Whereas everywhere else, you know, um, Mortam was a case in point. Islamabad will be the same starting tomorrow, I think. And Lahore has just been equal. Crowds have been fabulous. Mm. Um, you know, and that's kind of, that's the point of T20 cricket, isn't it? Is having lots and lots of bums on seats in the grounds where the games are being played. Mm. Um, and that certainly has been the case um, thus far in the PSL. Hmm. Well, well, it's been fun to watch and we've also got the uh, England-Bangladesh series that starts tomorrow to, to look forward to as well. The Wisdom Shop is offering a limited time only deal on all cricket training equipment for you and your teammates to hone your skills for the 2023 season. Use the code PODCAST20 for 20% off your order for this week only. Australia won the T20 World Cup for the sixth time in eight Editions. They beat Slavka in the final at Newlands, uh, was a packed house at Newlands. Let's start though with that England semi-final. I think that was arguably the moment of the tournament. Slavka sealing an epic wing win. Uh, Brits was the hero, uh, hitting fifty and catching everything. Katia, that was the moment of the tournament, really, and a massive moment for South Africa. There was a lot of written about them before the tournament. Yeah, brilliant story. Um, and yeah, it was a really, really good match. Uh, I think. England panicked. You could see that on the field. Completely disrupted everything that they were doing. You could see it in, in Catherine Siverbrunt's reaction, which has been widely, I, I think it's fair to say, criticised. Um, it's all good showing that passion, but you need to channel that passion into a constructive way. And it's undoubted that that, that wasn't channeled into a, into a positive way. Um, and England hadn't really been pressurised with the ball, I think it's fair to say, um, throughout the tournament. And South Africa absolutely took it to them. And that three three spin attack that England relied on, they knew they couldn't let that get on top of them. And, and Brits was, was, was excellent, like you said. Um, and... Even when they came off at half time in that semi final, it looked a little bit a little bit too much. And, and given South Africa's strength is their is their bowling attack with 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 Cap and the rest and and they're just brilliant. It was it was a little bit too far. And obviously it was Ayabonga Kaka um, and and the rest who who ripped through them towards the end of the innings. And it was a, a brilliant victory. And and like you said, if you look at where South Africa were at the start of the tournament with all the Danny Van Neerkirk stuff, um, losing to Sri Lanka in the opening game, which, you know, was quite embarrassing, really, because they just had this opening ceremony that announced this, the first T20, Women's T20 World Cup in South Africa. Big, packed-out crowd. And then they lost against Sri Lanka to a game they should have won, and they looked ragged, and their faces on the bench at the end of the match were absolutely desperate. Um, and then... The turnaround was so quick and they bowled New Zealand out for, I think it was 67 a couple of days later. 
um, lost against Australia, but still looked quite good losing against Australia. And that says something in itself that you look quite good losing against Australia. Um, and then completely dominated in their final group game. Um, and, and I think it, it's easy to say that um, South Africa is kind of like a, a zero to hero kind of story. But if you actually look at South Africa in the warm ups to this tournament, they won the tri series, they beat India in the final in the warm ups, they very nearly chased down nearly 250 against England in a warm up. There were signs that they could do it before the tournament, but all the noise in between the warm ups and the actual tournament starting created quite a narrative around them that they just weren't that good. Um, and that environment kind of allowed them to stun England in that semi-final the way it was. And obviously they just fell short against Australia in the final. That was always going to happen, but still a great story. Mm. In the semi-final, England were 54 for, for none, I think, after five and a half overs. They, they, they needed not that much more than six and a half from that point on. How, how much of a worry do you think it is that you've had a lot of young England players come through and really at the end of the day, and I think the knockout, stage of the tournament really highlight this outside of Nat Siver Brunt and Sophie Eccleston they don't really have anyone who's kind of taken that leap to that top top bracket that defines tournaments yeah I mean so that that moment that you said when England were they'd put on a half century stand and it was that last over the power play that was almost the moment of of the tournament for me that over from Shouter Mismile um I'm not sure if she if she breached 80 miles per hour on the speed gun or if she was just under it it was 128 point something I nice. think it's been rounded up to 80. Yes, yeah. which which would make it the fastest ever ball recorded in the history of women's cricket. And the over definitely was the fastest ever recorded because she was up near that kind of the whole time. Um, the I mean, the, the wicket of Alice Capsey there was, it was almost good cricket all round, weirdly. I mean, Capsey played a weird sort of falling pull shot, but she also somehow managed to middle it at the same time. Uh, and, uh, and Brits takes an absolutely ridiculous catch. I mean, she was brilliant through that whole game, but that was... Uh, that was just an astonishing moment o- on England. I'm not, I'm not too worried about the people, the players who haven't stepped up. Just because, although the hundred has come in and uh, the Kia Super League before that, and there are avenues now for players to test themselves uh, against the best before they get to the international stage, there is still that gap when you get to a top. Uh, like at, it's, it's the same in, in in men's cricket as well. When you get to the business end of a uh, of a T20 tournament or a, or a World Cup, you are facing an attack of the quality that you won't get in franchise cricket because there just might not be that that hole in it basically that you get because of you know auction dynamics and uh, budgets around construction the squad and that sort of thing. Um, and so it will just take players time to you know develop that proper consistency to be uh, complete match winners at that time. And that's kind of happened for for the players who are that level in the England team as well. That is just something that that yeah that you know. She had, if you can look back, you can find breakthrough innings where she turned from, you know, a very promising player to a world beater. And I'd imagine that will happen for the likes of, you know, Sophia Dunkley uh, and Alice Capsey. And I think on the whole, uh, this has been a positive tournament for England. I mean, that win against it, it was, I thought a bit odd people talking in the semi-final that like, oh, this classic England cruise through the group stages, lose the first tucker they play. That India game was a, a really brilliant performance uh, and, and they should take a lot of heart from beating that India team. Um, and just one more thing on South Africa. They, uh, th- th- there's a story of this tournament, which is obviously from, you know, losing that first game, kind of shambolic preparations and then making it to the final. But there's also the story of obviously South African cricket in general, 10 semi-final defeats, I think, before this 11th win. But South African women's cricket over the last few years, when actually, if you look at their tournament record, they have been, you know, it's between them... I mean, you could say that them, England and India have all been sort of 
roughly equal. You go back to the 2017 World Cup, they pushed England so close in that semi-final to lose by two wickets in the final over. Uh, then you go to the uh, 2020-T20 World Cup when they beat England in that group stage, go through the group stage unbeaten, push Australia really close. Laura Wolbach plays a brilliant innings. One of one of the best which you'll ever see she played in that innings was a sort of a covered drive and sort of miles outside leg stump. And then last year in the World Cup, uh, they were the best team in the group stage and then just just came up short against England in the semi-final. So th- this is a team and a group of players that I think uh, through, through how they've played in all those World Cups, it would have been almost a travesty if they had never reached a final and had that sort of occasion and for it to come at home is 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 great for them I think. Mm. In England I, I think that we compare them to Australia quite a lot but compared to South Africa and India I thought there was quite a there's quite a noticeable gap in the uh, variety of stroke play against really good bowling they could able, able to produce. I think one thing that Brits did that none of the England lineup other than Nat Severbrunt really did was kind of that the inside out shot over cover and be able to manipulate the field. Whereas I thought like South Africa, once they had that plan and they stuck to it, England couldn't really put the pressure back onto South Africa. And compared to the other three semi-finalists, I thought that was just an area where England were probably quite clearly fourth best out of those four teams. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's it's a good thing to bring up pressure because if you look at the semi-finals and the final, that was the difference, in my opinion, between... Australia, South Africa and India and England, Australia can always absorb that pressure because they're the best team in the world and they know it. Um, play very much like they know it. Um, and South Africa had have some players in that side who are who know their world class and who can deal with that pressure. England and India completely crumbled under the pressure. India should have won that semi-final. They absolutely should have. Um, and seeing Harman Preet Kaur's reactions getting out and also the dismissal in itself... Um, it just showed that, I guess inability is too strong a word, but that tendency to when you've got the pressure put on you to crumble rather than put the pressure back on the opposition. Um, and I think it's something we're starting to see with England under the new era that they're they're looking to put the pressure back on the opposition. We look at the no fear cricket and then scoring God knows how many runs in an innings at whatever rate. Um, but that's what's going to close the cliched gap as it were um, between Australia and the rest of the world is the ability to put that pressure back on also absorb that pressure um, and deal with those situations in different ways than both England and India dealt with them in those semi-finals mm. um, just, just on that India semi-final Phil Katia mentioned it there but that was a massive missed opportunity for India the way that Harman Preet and Jamima Rodriguez batted they should have won that game yeah, look, that partnership was absolutely scintillating stuff. And Harman Preet Kaur is uh, a phenomenon for me. Um, she's 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 the player who, uh, if I'm being absolutely honest, she's the player who shifted my my own relationship with women's cricket. That that famous innings, that one seventy and one hundred and fifteen deliveries against Australia in the World Cup in 2017. That was that's probably the first time where I watched women's cricket and was open mouthed at the at the stunning brilliance of it and she to me alongside some you know outstanding australians of course you know beth mooney is a machine meg lanning is has has a record to to make your eyes wince really and and england has nat siver brunt who's a world class cricketer but harman Kaur has something really quite magical about her um she there's not much of her there's not much kind of evident upper body strength there's not there, there are no kind of rippling muscles in the biceps or anything like that and yet she hits the ball so 
cleanly, so beautifully. And she hits a long ball as well. Forget short boundaries. She hits it into the stands. Thanks very much. And and Jemima Rodriguez as well has all the kind of pluck and creativity of of, of any outstanding Indian cricketer, irrespective of gender. So that partnership opened up all kinds of possibilities for Indian cricket, I think. Um, and it was just a sickener from a neutral's perspective. I say from a neutral's perspective. People want to see Australia felled at some point. Uh, and they will be as well, because the gap is the gap, but it's it's not as vast as it used to be or dramatic as it used to be. And for Harman Preet to get a back court in the ground and for that to be the thing that that... that you know, felled her in the end. That was just devastating to see. But it's quite, there's a really good piece by um, Wisden India's Sara Waris on India India's kind of pattern of defeats in major tournaments. Um, so the, the Commonwealth game defeat to Australia was very, very similar to this. And she looked at what Harman Preet said about her dismissal and how Harman Preet said that was unlucky. And, and Sara made the point it, it wasn't. You know, like if if it was it was like the Bracewell dismissal in the Test match. If you if you if she was properly running in in a World Cup semi final, and I know that she was ill, but like that that was part of the reason. It wasn't just the bat got stuck in the ground; is that she wasn't charging in. And with the, with the way Australia were in that field, in the field at the, at the end of that game, can you imagine an Australian player doing that at that moment? That that is why Australia is so relentless, even if they're not quite on it a hundred percent in a game. They just make sure that any moment they get like that, where a player can change a game, like that, that famous Perry save at the end, they, yeah. they, they always nail it in a way that other teams just, just don't quite do. Um, yeah, I, 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 was, I was at Chelsea a couple of years ago to see um, Australia wipe the floor with England in the third T20 of that summer, I think it was. And that was the summer when England couldn't buy a win. They almost nicked an ODI, fell away at the death, and then got steamrolled in all the other games. And... Watching the differences in fielding live was absolutely extraordinary. And Katya and me were talking about this the other week, actually. Why, why there is such a gap in fielding class across from Australia and then it's just a kind of descending story from there on in. And it has to come down to just how long established their system has been at delivering excellence versus... England's one, which remains still quite nascent, and obviously India's as well, and then you move further down the food chain. Um, Australia, are a, they move differently. They are a different beast in the field. Um, and that, more than anything else, is the standard, because you can have outlying brilliance with the ball. You can have Ish- Ishmael, who is a dream, and still the quickest bowler in, um, into her mid-30s and so on. You can have brilliant young players coming through all over the place, but there is a there's a collective presence to Australia's uh, side that, that no other team can get near. And that was the starkest difference across the semi and the final, I thought. I was just last thing, like on Australia, um, not necessarily in what Phil was saying, but I think in some of the commentary, there has been a tendency to say Australia are the best in the world and they're dominated. They dominate because of the system they have. And while that is in some ways true, it takes the agency away from the players that they have that are undoubtedly... 11 of the best players or however many of the best players in the world you know Darcy Brown is 19 years old and she has two World Cup winners medals as you said she was probably the player of the knockout stages of of the tournament you can't take anything away from what those players have achieved as individuals and they are phenomenally talented players you can't see a weak link in that side you know there is no weak link in that side and yes they 
Cricket Australia had had the, saw the saw the potential and they invested in it way before anyone else could be bothered to invest with it and they've reaped the rewards of that. But that shouldn't take anything away from an exceptional group of players who've dominated for so long and been so good for so long as individuals. I was going to mention Darcy Brown actually that we we talk about the gap potentially getting smaller, but the young players that Australia are producing are the best. You know, Darcy Brown's the best 19-year-old in the world. We're very excited about Alice Capsey. Darcy Brown is the best player in a World Cup final at 19. She is the second quickest bowler of the world at 19. Other countries have exciting young players, but they're, they're not on that level. Yeah, so I just want to go back to, to the, the, the England setup briefly, if I, if I may. They seem a bit uneven to me looking at, at, that, at that lineup. There's only really one, one world-class player in, in that who is right in the prime of her career. You have players on either side of, of that ledger. You have certain players who have been around for a long time, have reached their ceiling as, as cricketers, and they often win cricket matches, and they often do it brilliantly. But you don't feel like, say, Danny Wyatt's going to become a better player now. She's been around the side for over 10 years. Just to use her as an example, Amy Jones, she's 29. She's been around the team for a long time now. It's hard to imagine Amy Jones becoming a better player, a more impactful player than, than, than the player that she is now. Um, and then you have these, you know, the, the handful of young, young players as well, obviously coming through. But Alice Capsey's a teenager and she's batting three in a World Cup. And as we said in, on the show the other week, there was that slight concern that while she's obviously brilliant, that it's a big ask. It's a big ask for any, any cricketer at any level to be the, the main fulcrum so young in, in their cricket team. And then when you put it, in, put it into a World Cup semi-final, it's a different story. So it just feels to me like this, the team is slightly uneven, really, at the moment. But I think it will be, it will be better for this experience. And I think in a, in a couple of years' time, again, when Capsey and Freya Kemp and one or two others, and Dunkley as well, who's a bit of an, an enigma to me in this side. You know, she has a lot, of, a lot of ability, but she still feels quite raw to me. But she could become... England's next real breakout star potentially, but she's not yet not there yet. And there's a lot of cricketers that are, do you, do you kind of know what I mean that they're not quite on the on on the plat on the plane that, that where they would ideally want to be. With the exception of Nat Siverbrunt, who is in the the absolute perfect spot, the sweet spot of her career. Your, your point about the age of the team is is completely right. I think I don't think there's anyone in the team who's between the age of 24 and 29. So between Dunkley and Amy Jones. So you've got a lot of people 29 and above and you've got a lot of people 24 and under. That's, that's um, that thing again. Uh, the, the, the big gap of, oh, of yeah. talent. Uh, <laughs> like, like how England, England, England men's side have a, you know, a lot, especially in white have like a, a massive crop of players around the age of 30 to 32 and very few uh, uh, below that. We're, we're basically our age, Ben. We've, yeah, we've, basically, we've let the country we're down. We're the lost generation. On, uh, on Australia, uh, we discussed last week, didn't we, how, if you picked a... A, a team, to, a world eleven, to beat India in India in men's Test cricket. Uh, I wondered similarly if you picked a, uh, uh, a, you know, a rest of the world team to beat Australia in a, you know, three match G20 series or an, an all format, uh, sort of multi format thing. Uh, would they, would they do it? And I, 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 I kind of don't think they would. But we should, we should pick the team and then. Uh, yeah, we should do that next week. I mean, you probably want the Australia B team players to be available as well. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I just wonder. It'd be fascinating to try to find out. How do Australia feel when they win this? <laughs> I think World pretty Cup? good. Yeah, no, I mean, I know, I know, pretty good. Sure, like it can never. It, I'm sure it's not a bad feeling. Uh, but and it's more a question of of how 
how do they stay so motivated basically like when the challenge is basically staying that far ahead of the rest it's not you know uh how do you you know get yourself up to do you know that to, to train as hard as they do i, I think competition for places that, that's you have true. to be right on the top of your game and no matter what your name is you have to be right on top of the game to just get into the australia side alana king was doing brilliantly for a year Georgia Waring comes back. They want to change the balance of the side. She's suddenly out of the team. And the WBBL um, helps as well, I guess. Like these players do lose games of cricket. They just don't lose games of cricket for Australia, mm. I suppose. But yeah. yeah. I think there's something about creating history as well. Like there's a conversation now, is Australia women's team the best team that's ever played cricket, right? So if you're part of that kind of history making, then surely that motivates you as well. Mm. Moving on very quickly onto the Australia-India series. Uh, Pat Cummins will miss the third test in India due to a, a serious family illness so all of our thoughts are with the Cummins family just finally Ben on today's show England are playing the England men's side are playing an ODI against Bangladesh in 17 hours why should we care uh, it's, 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 a good, it's a good question uh, but I do think should we care I do, I do think this has the potential to be uh, a really interesting series and a very important one for England's World Cup preparations I mean this is not a settled England ODI side there are questions you can find over uh, lots of places and you have a lot of those players will be battling for those sort of two or three batting spots uh, in this series and um, Will Jax is in the squad so he wasn't before okay but when Tom Abel was injured and I don't think we've covered this in the squad England decided to, to they decided they don't need two spare batters in New Zealand so they got Jax to fly over to Bangladesh so Jax could play well there you go Jax could play Which that would that, be interesting that, that, that would be interesting yeah I mean um, 6am start by the way the other thing as well like this I think so obviously it's a big addition similar-ish to India as well I mean you got, you got Roy who obviously had that bit of return to form but there are sort of questions over him in, in these sorts of conditions I think mostly though I think it could just be really good uh, ODI cricket which is the kind of thing that you don't expect to to happen you look at ODI series and like oh this isn't gonna be that fun and then a good idea happens like that was a good ODI that was good that, that happens Bangladesh have lost one home series since the 2015 World Cup and that was two Joss Butler's England in another series that was brilliant when Ben Duckett made his debut made a couple of 60s there was a bit of fighting going on in the field uh, uh, other things that could be exciting Joff Rarch is in the squad Sam Curran's in the squad Sakeem Mood can make his first uh, England appearance for absolutely ages and Rahan Ahmed can make his ODI debut yes. although um, he's ill so he's not going to play the first game okay. so if you're getting up early get up for the second one and you might see <laughs> Ahmed in that okay. sorry Yaz um, okay um that is all we have time for on today's show. Cheers, Katia. Cheers, Ben. Cheers, Phil. Hope you need to get better soon. Uh, this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. Cheers for listening. We'll be back very soon. Sports Social Podcast Network.